Good morning. You can be seated. I'm not that cool. Well, hello. Uh, I don't think there's any here who don't know me, but in case I am accidentally overlooking you, I'm Sean. I'm the associate pastor here, and man, uh, thank you. <laughs> And it is nice and wonderful and lovely to see your faces today. Um, this truly is, uh, Sundays truly are a wonderful and remarkable time for God's people. They are an, a, a blessing um, when we get to come together and we get to, worship, we get to worship and serve the one true living God, the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth, the king of all that is. And we get to do so together as a family, as his body. This is a wonderful blessing that we've been given. And we are fortunate to live somewhere that we're not hindered from doing so. Um, as Jeff uh, has pointed out many times, we have brothers and sisters all across the world who will hug their families goodbye because they don't know if they'll be coming home from church. Um, and we blessedly do not live in such a state um, and we should thank God for that and we should we should be sure to take advantage of that while the opportunity is available um, we shouldn't write this off as simply simply something else to do or something that you know if I if I have nothing better lined up I'll go to church but you know the moment something else more interesting or that I would prefer comes along, well, I'm going to jump on that instead. No, this church should be that which we shape our weekends around. And it should be what happens in church, the preaching of the Lord, the worship of the Lord. That should carry us through the rest of the week until we meet together again. Um, that one's free. You don't have to pay extra for that. But just something that was on my heart I wanted to share with you. Um, surprise, surprise, we are going to be Continuing in First Samuel, so we'll be in First Samuel chapter seventeen. This is nice. That's fair. We're going to be in First Samuel chapter seven. We're going to be picking up where Brother Jeff left off um, in verse seven. So First Samuel chapter seven, beginning in verse seven. I'm going to give you just a moment to find that, um, and then we will read together. And then we will um, we will dive in and see what the Lord has for his people. So again, that is 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning again in verse 7. If you are able and have found it, I ask that you please stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. One last time, that is 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. I'm in the English Standard Version today. No particular reason. It was just the only one that didn't make me have to flip pages while reading it. So... That's, uh, that's the only reason I picked this one. And the word of God says, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. 
As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shem and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the land of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as blessed as we are to get together together, Lord, we have been blessed even more so to get to open your very words and read them in a language we can understand. Lord, we have been blessed by the words we have read. Lord, we pray that your spirit would bless us even more so in leading us through your word. God, so that we don't look in this mirror and go away and immediately forget what we look like, but instead we would see, look into the mirror of the law and we would study it and that your spirit would do the work of applying your word to our lives where it's needed. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, the living, breathing word. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so, 1 Samuel 7, starting in verse 7. Where were we before here? So before here, a lot happened. Uh, we met Elkanah and Hannah, who were having trouble having children. Um, and so uh, Hannah prayed to the Lord, and the God blessed the couple with a child. They named him Samuel, and they devoted this child to the Lord in fulfillment of the promise. Samuel was then turned over essentially to Eli the high priest, um, where he served in the presence of Eli um, until, and even even prophesied against the house of Eli uh, after Eli's neglect in dealing with his horrible children um, who were abusing their power and positions as priests of God to not just uh, fulfill their selfish desires, but even to even to abuse spiritually the people of God. Um, and we see uh, we see Samuel continue to serve not just in the presence of Eli but even in the presence of the Lord himself. We see uh, Samuel um, we see Samuel go on to um, or as he continues to serve um, Israel begins to go to war with the Philistines. Um, there's there's an issue. Um, they are disagreeing probably over land, um, and probably over some of the territory we actually just read. Um, 
And so there is a war going on, um, and Israel is not faring well in the wars or in the battles. So they uh, send for the Ark of the Lord um, as kind of a good luck charm to try to use that to say, uh, say, oh, we've got our good luck charm now. We're going to be okay. Um, and so the uh, the Lord allowed them to continue to be to be defeated, um, the ark even to be captured, and Eli's sons killed in fulfillment of the prophecy against the house of Eli. Um, and <clears throat> news of that is taken back to to Eli. He dies upon hearing the news, um, and one of his daughters-in-law goes into labor, um, and the child's name, fittingly, is Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed. And then from there we get an episode in Philistine territory of what they're doing with the Ark. And they plan, essentially, um, putting it up in uh, the temple of one of their gods. And uh, as a show of superiority, uh, their victory over not just Israel, but the God of Israel. And uh, they come in and see the statue of their god face down, essentially bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and they think, hmm, that's weird. So they put him back up. And then the next morning they come in and not only is he bowing before the Ark of the Covenant, his head and his hands have been snapped off. Um, and at that point, you stop thinking, that's weird, and start thinking, oh no. Um, and that's exactly what they start thinking, because then a plague sweeps through the land. And uh, to get rid of the plague from one city, they move it to another city. And wouldn't you know it, the plague just follows. And as it follows, it gets worse. And as it gets worse, it kills more people in Philistine. And they take it. They essentially take it in um, what is God mocking their um, victory march and turning it really into a funeral procession um, as it goes from city to city. And then um, they consult their own priests, prophets, whatever. And asked them, what do we do? And they said, put some gifts in it and send it back. And I said, okay, we'll do that. So they do that. It ends up somewhere. Um, and they, it ends up in Israelite territory. The first place it stops at, they do not treat it with respect. Um, so then it is moved somewhere else where it is, where it stays for, I believe, um, for quite a while. Um, some 20 years, I believe. Um, and then we are brought to, we, or, and then we come to the passage that uh, Brother Jeff preached on last week, which was finally, after all this time, Israel repents. Israel is gathered together. Samuel comes out, he proclaims the truth of their situation, the word of God to them, and they repent. By God's grace, they repent. And then. That brings us to our passage today, starting in verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, where they gathered to repent, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now have you, have you been there? I know I have. And I don't mean have you been to this geographical location called Mitzvah. I'm guessing you probably haven't. Uh, unless you haven't. God bless you. I love to hear stories. But have you been to Mitzvah in the sense of 
you repent. You turn to the Lord. And wouldn't you know it, it seems that at that exact moment, you get punished for whatever it is. In the worst way possible. So as the children of Israel are gathering together at Mizpah, and they are observing a obviously a, a religious um, ceremony, ritual. Um, the Philistines hear of this, and they think, well, it's not festival time. They're probably getting ready for war. So the Philistines said, why don't we get ready for war? So the Philistines gather together. They say, they're getting together. They're, they're prepared for war. We're preparing for war. And as the Israelites hear that the Philistines are preparing for war, what do they do? They get scared. Why? Well, because they weren't gathering for war. They were gathering for repentance. And when you gather for repentance, I don't know how many weapons you'll have available. Um, maybe they all came armed. I'm willing to bet they probably did. Um, so... They're scared because A, they're going to war against people who have already defeated them once in recent memory. Two, because they're not really prepared for war. They came together to repent for their transgressions, for their sins that, as we saw, um, as we saw weeks earlier, were actually instigated and initiated by the very sons of Eli because of their aberration of God's sacrifices and of the people to afford God's sacrifices and, um, and essentially to have zero respect for it at all. So we see uh, the Philistines gathering for war against Israel and Israel's scared because they think, I mean, what would you say? I mean, I've been there where I get on my knees and say, God, okay, I can't do this anymore. I can't have this anymore. God, I turn from this wickedness, I turn to you. And that's when all hell seems to break loose. That's when everything seems to fall apart. That's when life comes crashing down. And so what could they have, what could they have done? Well, they had options here. Had the repentance been just for show? They could have gone, ah, well, thanks a lot, Samuel. I'm going home now. Mm-hmm. Done with this. But instead, in evidence that their repentance was given by God, the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not stop. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us so that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. I mean, in reality, yeah, that was probably their best bet, but this is, this is evidence of their genuine repentance, of that which was given by God, that, that they had been turned from their wickedness to the Lord. Rather than getting mad at Samuel and saying, you doomed us, they turn to Samuel and they say, don't, Keep going. Because we're gathered here, we're basically fish in a barrel, and we have no hope. The only hope we have is God, so don't stop saying Keep calling out to the Lord. 
that he may deliver us from the hands of our enemies. My friend, we have a high priest who does not cease to stop crying out for us. We have a high priest who does not stop calling out to the Lord on our behalf. And this isn't some high priest or some, some priest, some prophet, some judge who's on a high place who symbolize being closer to God. We have a high priest sitting at the right hand of the Father. Amen. That's right. Sitting right there. He has his ear. You don't have to go through you don't have to go through pastors or or mortal priests. You don't have to go through dead saints. You don't have to go through Mary, the mother of Jesus. You go straight to Jesus. And that high priest who does not cease to call out to God on your behalf will continue to do so. He does not stop. Even when the Philistines of your life are pressing in. Even when they are approaching. While you're in the secret place. And you're at your most vulnerable. And you don't feel like you're ready to do battle. He does not cease to call out to God on your behalf. That is a promise to his people. It's not a promise for everybody. This isn't something everybody gets the benefit of. He said it himself in the garden in John 17 before he went to the cross. He does not pray for the whole world. He prays for those whom the Father has given and those who believe by their testimony. That's the people of God. He does not cease to pray, to call out to the Lord on your behalf. And so Samuel, or the people of Israel say to Samuel, do not stop, Samuel. Keep calling out to God because right now God is all we have. So don't stop. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. My friend, Jesus Christ did absolutely this, did he not? Not only did he, while he was here, proclaim the gospel and cry out for his people, but he offered himself up. Not a lamb, not a nursing lamb. If you're reading an older translation, they say suckling lamb. But he offered up himself. The lamb whose very milk and meat was the word of God. And he offered up himself as a sacrifice in conjunction with his cries out to the Lord for his people. And there, just as the Lord answered Samuel, God answered Christ. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous man avails much, mm-hmm. and the prayer of the truly and inherently righteous man avails everything. 
he calls out to God on our behalf continuously and offered himself up in our place. Why? Because this sacrifice we see here was probably a sin sacrifice. It was probably an atoning sacrifice. Because as we discover later, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so blood has to be shed for the offense that has been made against God. But the blood of bulls and goats is nothing but a, a sign, a figure. It points to something. Because the blood of bulls and goats doesn't pay the cost. Because the price is too steep. The weight is too heavy. And all the bulls, and all the lambs, and all the goats, they all satisfy. But the blood of the Lamb of God, the very lifeblood of the God-man, of the Dave's home, the God-man, Amen. His blood has infinite value. His blood is not just enough to cover the sins of one person. It's enough to cover the sins of every person. And it is applied specifically to the sins of His people. This is the priest and the sacrifice whom Samuel in this passage, in this story, is pointing to. He's not simply, maybe even unbeknownst to himself, I have no clue, I don't know what all the Lord revealed to, to Samuel, but maybe even unbeknownst to himself. He's not just fulfilling a role and a function and an office for people at a particular time. But he's pointing us to the one who fulfills the role and the function and the office for all time. This is what Saint God is doing in Samuel. Samuel's taking this nursing lamb, offering it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And he cries out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answers him. And my friend, you can be guaranteed, you can be certain, you can be assured that when Christ calls out on your behalf, God hears him. And God answers him. That is the promise of God to his people in Christ. Verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near. They advanced. They got closer. Why to attack? They drew near to attack Israel as Samuel is calling out to the Lord. So this people who once treated God and the Ark of the Covenant that was made with God as some kind of token and who were therefore 
punished by God using this other people who didn't even see it as a token, saw it as a souvenir. Saw it as a symbol of their victory, not just over Israel, but over the God of Israel. Those people are now advancing. They're getting closer, and their intention is to attack the people of God while they're in the midst of repenting. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Israel was never more prepared for war than when they were repenting and drawing near to God. My friend, the same holds true for God's people today. We are never more prepared for that which life is going to throw at us, that which the enemy himself may hurl at you. Like a stone, like an arrow, like a speeding bullet, like a rocket-propelled grenade. We are never more prepared for those things than when we are on our knees, repenting before the Lord and drawing near to Him. Amen. This is how you prepare for battle in the Christian life. It is not with it is not with exercises and drills. It is not with weapons and armament. It is not with armor and shields. It is by getting on our knees and our face before God and calling out to Him. Repenting of our offenses against Him and resting wholly and solely the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we are not left to do this alone, but he sent the Holy Spirit to intercede for us so that even when our words come out mumbling and broken, or maybe they don't even come out at all, the Spirit intercedes. And when God speaks to God, to relay the message to God, He will hear. He will hear and He will answer. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah. Mizpah means, it can mean high place or vantage point. To be just probably The men of Israel went out from Mizpah where they had gathered and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth Car. You're going to ask me a question. How far is that? I don't know. I have no idea. And to be real frank, none of the commentaries or study Bibles I consulted have any idea either. But it was worth noting, so it was probably a pretty good jump. Um, so the Israelites pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth Carter, a great distance away. And how did that happen? Because the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines 
and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. I think the idea here is they were defeated before Israel even got there. And this, this, the Lord thundering with a mighty sound. I have debate on doing this. We're going to do it. Uh, turn back to chapter 2, verse 10. If you remember correctly, this is the prayer of Hannah. As she's in the temple praying to the Lord. Or thanking the Lord, rather. Um, honoring him for giving them Samuel and having turned him over. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. We see here in chapter 7, verse 10, a direct application of what Hannah prayed in chapter 2, verse 10. We see the Lord thundering against his enemies, breaking them into pieces by throwing them into confusion. We see here the Lord fulfilling that which has been promised. And we see this, we see this, this Lord's thundering coming as a result of the prayer of the man who was given over that day (laughs) during the prayer of that woman. Here Matthew Henry says, pray for individuals should be individuals in prayer. And I think that is a pretty deep insight into what's going on here. We see Samuel, whose mother and whose mother specifically, probably also his father, had prayed for it. Or who knows how? Before they actually got it. Prayed for him, cried for him, wept over him. And in this, and then once they received him. Turning him over to the Lord as promised. And in this, not, not weeping, not sorrowful, not mourning this decision, but in joyous exaltation, praising the living God, saying that he thunders against his enemies in the heavens. And this very son whom they turned over. Praise for the Lord. On behalf of the people of Israel, the ones over whom he was to serve in, in the presence of God, and he praised for the praise for them, and the Lord, in answer to his prayer, thunders in the heavens against his enemies, breaking them into pieces, casting them into confusion, and as a result, defeating them by his own hand and not as the result of weapons or armor. My friends, this is so rich and deep. And this is so full of God's fulfillment of that which he has promised to do that we can rest assured with a track record like this we have nothing to fear 
when God promises his people something. And I know, I know it's hard. I know it is not easy. I know it's hard. I know when you're in it. Promises can just seem like empty words. Promises can just seem like vain talkings. No matter who they're from. I know when you're in it and the promise seems so far away that it's impossible. It is in those times or maybe God is waiting on us to get on our knees and repent and to turn to him and say, God, Holy is your name. And to and to ask the Spirit and the Son to continue to cry out on our behalf. Maybe that is what God is waiting for during those times. Maybe that is what God is driving his people to during those times. I'm not saying that's going to mean everything turns out exactly the way you want it to. In fact, nine times out of ten, um, what we want isn't what's best for us. And God knows that. But I will promise you that it is never a bad idea to turn to the Lord in prayer and fasting in His Word to get on our faces before Him in our very own mishap and to call out to Him and to know that we are not calling out to him in our own power, in our own strength, by ourselves, but we call in unison with Christ and the Holy Spirit. So the Philistines are routed. They are defeated, and they are chased away. So Samuel takes a stone and he sets it up between Mizpah and Shem. Your translation might say Jeshana. Same place, no big deal. But he takes a stone, he sets it up between Mizpah and Shem, and he calls its name Ebenezer. Now that is ironic. Why? Because it was at Ebenezer. Maybe the same place. Maybe not. Where the Israelites previously had been thoroughly and completely defeated last time. But Samuel takes the stone, he sets it up, and he calls it Mizpah. What does Mizpah mean? It means the stone or the rock of hell. And why does he name it that? Because he says, Till now the Lord has helped us. If you have an older translation, it may say, Hitherto. Or if you have another translation, it may say, Up to this point, or until now, the Lord has helped us. And that being the point that, regardless of what is in store for God's people in the future, we have ample reason 
to praise him for what he's already done. And there's nothing wrong with maybe setting up a little reminder of what that is. We have a pretty big one now, don't we? It's an empty tomb. It's own rock. It's own stone set up in Jerusalem. And that tomb is empty. And that rock rolled away to serve as a reminder, as an Ebenezer of God's faithfulness and his providence to fulfill that which which he has promised. And until now, the Lord has helped us and because of that, we can praise him. Because whatever happens from this point forward, we've already gotten not just much more than we deserve, but we've gotten good in spite of what we deserve. Because till now, the Lord has helped us. And the stone serves as a reminder of God's deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. In a fashion that also points back to the reason why deliverance was needed in the first place. So the Philistines were subdued. Your translation may say subjugated. Your translation may say brought under control. All good translations. The Philistines were subdued and did not enter again the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So, as a result of this, the Philistines, the enemies of God and his people, were driven out of Israel. And they were essentially put in check. And for all the days, the rest of the days of Samuel's life, the Philistines said, we're not going there. That ain't happening. And even the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. Now here we have... The language is a little hard to translate, um, but what it's what what it appears to have happened is that um, so Ekron and Gath were essentially two. They were two of the five um, pentapolis cities, um, two of the five major cities in the Philistine. I'm so sorry, that was awkward. Two of the five major cities in the Philistine uh, territory, um, and they were the ones closest to Israel. And so what we have here is, essentially, Israel chases the Philistines out of their territory all the way um, to their city, their two biggest towns that are close by, Ekron and Gath, and even and the territories that had been essentially allotted to those two cities um, as a result of the previous war um, were returned to Israel. Um, not necessarily that uh, Ekron and Gath were turned over to Israel, but that the territories which they had taken from the last war were given over to Israel. Um, and these, so essentially Ekron and Gath kind of became the border between Israel and Philistine territory. And the Philistines weren't too interested in going past Ekron and Gath because now you're in Israelite territory and they... Uh, one helping was enough. They didn't want a second helping. So, 
The cities that they had taken, that Ekron and Gath had taken, were returned to Israel. Israel delivered their territory from the hands of the Philistines. So they are, there is peace, essentially, with uh, this external enemy, the Philistines. So, and we now have a clear border between us and them. There is also peace, as verse 14 continues, between Israel and the Amorites, who are, who are um, people who, remnants of the people who lived in the land of Canaan before Israel got there. Um, these people tended to live in the hill country, in, in the hilly parts, um, and so they're kind of in the territory, and God, and God has not just given Israel peace between them and external enemies, but between them and enemies who even live in their midst. So we're seeing God blessing Israel with peace, and friends, this is a foreshadowing of the peace that God is bringing to his people. How can it not be? How can this not be a foreshadowing of the very peace that God promises his people and a peace that starts here in this life, even though this life itself is not very peaceful? There's a day coming. There's a future. There's a hope. There is a day coming when God is going to restore peace all across the world. In every heart, mind and soul. I'm not saying universalism. I'm saying recreation where God's people live in God's recreated order. And we do so peacefully and happily. It doesn't matter what what you uh, position you take eschatologically or of the end times. Um, that day's coming for all of us. That day is coming, whether you believe it's we're working up to that, or it's just going to be a really hard one. It's coming. That day is coming, and we can rest in that. Why? Because that is a promise, and we know that the Lord has helped us till now. So we can trust in His promise and His promises that He will continue to provide and fulfill and be faithful. I was going to go through the end of the chapter, but I think this is a good place to stop. Because then we talk about Samuel. And then this transition between Samuel and, and Israel's first king. I'll let you do that. <laughs> so, my, my friend, my brother, my sister, in Christ. If you take away anything today, I want you to take away these two things. Number one that as a child of God when you cry out to the Lord Christ cries out with you and the Lord will hear his son and number two till now the Lord has helped you rejoice and be glad in this day that the Lord has made thanking him for the help that he's given so far Trusting that he will continue to do so regardless of what comes. Regardless of what Philistines or Amorites are in store for you. God is faithful. So get down on your face, on your knees, repent, call out to the Lord. And he will hear you. He will hear the voice of his people because the shepherd knows his sheep. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this beautiful day that you've blessed us with. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that we 
maybe counted among your people, that God, that this passage we've we've read is not just rich with historical facts and truths, Lord, but it's rich with spiritual truth. Lord, that even something so seemingly so ordinary and historical and just plain factual can enrich our souls and our hearts and our lives, can renew our minds, can bring about peace, can restore calmness and quiet to our souls, and can draw us nearer to you by your Spirit. We thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, who cries out for his people at your right hand, and that because you love your Son, you hear him. We pray, Lord, that you would conform our cries to be cries which long for your will, so that we can cry out to you in repentance and faith, turning from our wicked ways and turning to you by the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus, in which we pray. Amen. We'd like to stand